Good morning. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is RD. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome uh, you to Door Creek Church. Uh, if uh, you are new, it's your first time. A very special welcome to you. Uh, if you're nervous about church, that's okay. A lot of us are. And uh, we're still here trying to follow Jesus together. If you've been here a long time, I also want to welcome you. Glad that you are here. Uh, we are in a new series that's going to take us all the way th- just over through Christmas in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a really, really great study throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And so what we want to do in this first message is both talk through the very first 17 verses and also hopefully help us understand what's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, probably for most of us, we're not really sure uh, beyond that there's a book called 1 Corinthians, what's actually happening. And so we kind of want to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about all fall by looking at the book, what's going on behind the words. So we kind of know the context, know the setting, know the characters. And so that's what we want to do today. And then week by week, we'll just be going passage by passage through the book uh, until Christmas. And it's going to take us uh, up until then. So it's going to be really, really a powerful series, hoping that God uses it in in just a great way. And so what we want to do first is just, I want to read the first passage here. Uh, We have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And so... uh, probably going to work through this verse by verse, but before I did that, I want to read the whole thing to you. And so if you have a Bible, you can grab it. If it's on your phone, uh, you can grab it. It's going to be really important that you have your Bible because we're going to be in the text so much. All right. And so we have Bibles at the back. You can look at it on your phone. Really, really uh, important. So I'm going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 to set the stage of the opening verses here of this letter. Verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one could say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, what a joy to read your word 
in public. Father, I pray that right now you would just quiet us, you would still us, all of the thoughts running through our minds, all of the things that maybe happened this morning, this week. Father, would you just still us in your presence? That we would hear, not, not from me, not anything that I want to say, but what you want to say to your church, Door Creek, Lord. That we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. Father, this word is living and active, and that this morning, that our hearts, our minds, might be changed, that we might look more like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you be among us now as we consider your word, your living word, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Verse one, Paul, we'll stop there. I promise we'll move a touch quicker. Um, But in order to know what uh, we're, we're doing here, we have to know who wrote the letter. And so it's easy to just gloss over that and be like, well, Paul, we know Paul wrote the letter, but if, if we just kind of know a little bit about Paul, then it's not going to be helpful because Paul was so intimately connected to the church in Corinth, which is who the letter is written to. And we want to know a little bit about his biography. Who, who was he and, and who is he? Because that helps set the context. Because if you don't know the person who maybe who's writing you a letter, it can be hard to know what they're saying and what they're meaning. And so I have a, a painting by Rembrandt of the Apostle Paul. Granted, uh, we don't have any pictures of him, obviously. Uh, but this is a, a possible rendition by Rembrandt of the Apostle um, Paul. And this is him, uh, a painting of him in prison where he wrote several of his letters. And uh, you can see he's definitely older in, in life and he has kind of the wise look. And that, that may be how a lot of you think of Paul. He's really smart. He kind of had a crazy conversion experience and he wrote some letters. That's about it. And so what I want us to do, because every single word that we're reading is, is written by the Apostle Paul, to know what's in his mind. Who is he? And how does he come to write 13 of the letters of the New Testament? And so we begin with where you always begin when someone asks you to tell them about yourself. I was born. Right. And so Paul was born around the time of Jesus, maybe a few years before or a few years after in a town called Tarsus, which is in the Roman Empire. And it was a town that was not kind of in the backwater somewhere. It was actually a fairly populous town. It was a town that had several universities. And so it was a very intellectual town. It was very cosmopolitan. Uh, And he was born in a Jewish household, and so he was Jewish, steeped in Judaism. But he wasn't just born in a Jewish household, which you might expect from someone kind of writing the scriptures. He was also born in a household uh, that had Roman citizenship, which is very unusual for a Jewish person to also have Roman citizenship. And if you were a Roman citizen, then you had higher rights and privileges than people who were not Roman citizens. And so Paul's family likely was probably not poor, probably at least middle class, maybe a little bit higher. They had some means, they had some connections. And so he's born, maybe not necessarily in the privilege, but he's not probably born in the great poverty. Right? His father, we know, based on his talking about his family, his father uh, was Jewish. Paul was raised in, in um, just the tribe. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, so like the most religious of, of all the tribes. And then he has this Roman citizenship. And so at an early age, or somewhat early age, he goes from Tarsus, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he travels from there to Jerusalem to study under one of the most preeminent rabbis in the first century, the rabbi Gamaliel, uh, who's talked about in Acts chapter 9. So you can read about that if you 
want to do that. But one of the the most respected rabbis of the first century, Paul is a student of this teacher. And so he's learning even more about the scriptures. So the apostle Paul would know the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, better than any of us. Okay, he would have so much of it actually memorized. It's in his mind, if maybe not in his heart. He knows it. And so not, not only that is Paul someone who knows the Bible and that's it. He's also someone who based on where he grew up and based on his many travels and his education, he's very cultured. So he's extremely intelligent. We know that based on just his writings, but he likely writes and speaks in Aramaic and Greek. He's lived in multiple different cities. He's traveled as much as anyone in the ancient world would have traveled. So he's seen a lot of different cultures. He's met tons of different kinds of people. So he's not just someone that was kind of in the church all the time and had no idea what's going on. He knows the world. He knows what's going on in the world, yet he also knows God. And yet what we find out about Paul is that his knowledge of God uh, did not line up with actually who God truly was because he became a persecutor of the church. You may know this, or he was called Saul, and he was someone who was a persecutor of the church. Well, how did someone named Saul, who's persecuting the church, go from that reality in their life to then becoming a writer about the church and planning multiple churches? Well, we can now continue. (laughs) Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, so Paul was called to be an apostle. He didn't volunteer. He didn't go to the apostle school in the first century and say, sign me up, I'm ready to be an apostle. No, God knocked him on his butt. (laughs) You can read about this in the book of Acts. Paul was actually on his way to Damascus, called the Damascus Road Experience. And uh, he was on his way, and in his satchel, he had the names of some of the early Christians that he was going to round up and put in jail, or even worse. And so this, this is where his life is headed, right? He's on the road to Damascus, far away from the true and living God, in his satchel that he's walking with are names of the people that he's about to go round up. And what happens on the road? Jesus Christ <laughs> intervenes in his life and saves him. A light blinds Paul. Paul's like, what is happening? And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And Jesus is like, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And from that moment on, Paul begins to understand who Jesus Christ is. He becomes, if you will, a, a Christian. And he's called to be an apostle. An apostle means someone who's sent by God, who's commissioned by God, who's seen the risen Jesus and has a message and a mission from God. And so you think Paul's heart has been radically changed? Has God totally transformed his heart? This is not something that Paul volunteered for, but God called him to do this. He was called, he was made an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, not by his will, not by his desire, by the will of God, by the purpose of God, by the sovereign plan of God. Paul was a blasphemer and a murderer and God rescued him and saved him. This is how Paul talks about his conversion 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was, keyword was, once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's Paul's story, right? I was this. I met Jesus. I am now this person. And guess what? That's all of our stories if we are in Christ, right? The details are different, and we always love hearing the stories of people in their, in their testimonies, but the basic story is this. I was living this way. I was pursuing life this way. Jesus met me, and now my life looks different. That's everyone's story because that's who God is. That's all that God does. He rescues sinners. He saves sinners. And Paul's saying, I'm an example that if God can save me, who can he save? Who's unreachable? Who's untouchable? No one. Because if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. And I am an example that grace is available for all people because of the grace poured out abundantly on me. I am not who I used to be. And this is the man who is writing the letters to the church in Corinth. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes. Sothenes, just briefly in Acts chapter 18, if you read about the founding of the church in Corinth, was uh, the Jewish, one of the Jewish leaders of the synagogue in Corinth. So not a Christian, but most scholars believe that this is the same Sothenes who was the Jewish leader in Corinth. And somehow between Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he became a Christian. Right? He had the same experience. And so we have Paul, whose writing has been converted. Sothenes, who uh, is now a leader in the early church in Corinth, he's been converted. And so they're sending their greetings to the church in Corinth. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So verse 2, here's the context. Here who this letter is written to. It's written to the church of God in Corinth. Now that's really important. This letter did not just kind of circulate randomly or fall from the sky. It was written to a specific group of people in a place in time. And so Corinth as a city, just so we know what type of city this was, because we're spending all the fall in Corinth, and so uh, we need to know what it was like. Because it's not enough to just be like, Corinth, yeah, 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 let's get to the stuff that relates to me. That's not how you read the Bible. We have to know what was going on in the first century. And then from there, take out principles. But we need to read it in the context of the first century. And so to do that, we have to understand what was going on at Corinth. Corinth uh, was a city that, by many accounts, was uh, just known for its sexual immorality, as many cities uh, in the Roman Empire were. But Corinth especially was known for that. It was known as just a haven for prostitutes. In fact, uh, there, there was a Greek temple uh, to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love. And there were prostitutes all around the temple. And people would use these prostitutes all the time. And this would happen throughout the city all the time. Well, not only was Corinth... Um, sexually immoral, uh, it was also a place where um, it was a port city. So you had people coming from all over, right? You could see uh, it also happened to be on an isthmus, which is 
kind of funny. And uh, it's right there. It straddles all. It's right now. It's still in modern Greece. I've been there, so you can still go see it. The ruins, it looks a little different now, uh, but you can go see it and see the inscriptions as well to the god, to the goddesses. Uh, you can go and see the temples and the ruins that are still there. Not only was it a center for sexual morality, it was a center for high culture. So uh, they were like where Paul grew up. There are universities there. The people there loved uh, to hear people talk. They loved to hear people with clever speech. They were very impressed with intellectual people. And so there was a high level of education in the city. And like I said, it was also a port city. So there were a lot of people who were on the very lower end of the social class. So it was kind of like a melting pot of all kinds of people. But none of the values of Corinth were Christian values. Right? It was not a Christian city. There was nothing Christian about it. It was a city that exuded everything that the world values. One commentator, Leon Morris, he writes this, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud of his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. This was Corinth. Another commentator says that ancient Corinth was the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the first century. You think it's difficult being a Christian in Madison? Please. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying this book may be relevant to us. And so this is the context in which a fledgling group of disciples are being called to be the church in this city context. And so Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth. And so Paul planted the church in Corinth. So there was no church. There was no church. But Paul came to Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, you can read about this. He comes to Corinth. He meets a husband and wife team named Priscilla and Aquila who had been fleeing from Italy. So they're Italians. They're fleeing from Italy. They land in Corinth. They're tent makers just like Paul. What are the odds? Right. Yeah. And they maybe set up shop in Corinth. And all of a sudden, maybe a couple months later, who knows, someone named Paul comes knocking on their door, led probably by the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul lived with them, stayed with them, learned with them. And they likely, the three of them with a few other people, become some of the founders of the church in Corinth, which is just amazing. Sometimes we look, I know we see Paul as like Paul. He, if only Paul was around now. Paul is just a man. Priscilla and Aquila are this husband and wife team. They're, they're just they're tent makers that God uses to start a church. Right? God just uses ordinary people to bring his presence on earth in the church. Broken people, messed up people, right? People just like you and me. And yet he uses them to start a movement in a city to push back the darkness and to have the light descend. And he starts with basically three people. But slowly but surely, if you read Acts chapter 18, you see that more and more people come to faith in Jesus because that's who Jesus is. He's constantly bringing people to him. And so we know this early church has many problems, though. Right, and we're going to be talking about them week after week after week, and we're going to get into the first problem in just a second, which is an issue of they're not united. But there are many other issues. There's sexual immorality within this church, right? There's a case of incest going on in the church that's not being disciplined. Now, you know, if that's happening, there may be some issues at the church. 
right? The people that don't believe in the resurrection. There's lawsuits among believers. There's, there's infighting. There are all kinds of problems because though the Corinthians were, the church was in the world, so much of the world was also in the church. And what often happens when, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they bring a lot of their past life with them. And it's tough to figure out, well, how do I do this whole Christ thing? I don't know. I live my whole life so far from God. I'm bringing all of that in. It's not like when you come to faith in Christ, your memory gets erased. You're still bringing in so much of your past, and yet over time, the church exists to help you look to your past and see what Christ has done to redeem your past and help you walk into a new future. And so you have many people, though. It's easy to be like, oh, the Corinthians, oh, oh the people of Israel, oh. <laughs> right, the first century problems are 21st century problems because they're heart problems. Right? And what we want to look at is see that though this Corinthian church had so many issues, Paul has such affection for them. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. Sanctified in Christ Jesus means to be set apart. It means that you've been made holy in Christ. You, not, holy people are not like certain people uh, that are really special or really religious, right? If you are in Christ, you've been made holy. You are holy. That's how God sees you. So Paul says, all of you, though you're messed up, though you're broken, though you're sitting like crazy, you have been made holy by an act of God and you're called to be holy. And that's the problem. Though they've been made holy, though that's their positional identity, they aren't living in that reality. And so Paul is going to call them to be who you are in Christ, Live up to who you already are in Christ. You don't have to achieve anything. God's already made you holy by his grace. He's already put you in his family. Live up to that reality. Live into who you already are in Christ. The most authentic thing you can do is not to be who you are, despite what culture says. The most authentic thing you can do is be who Christ is in you. Let him live out of you. That's authenticity. That's where freedom is, and that's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. Be who Christ is in you. Which is just astounding that he can write that to a church that I know he's like, what is happening? <laughs> Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this verse three here just quickly kind of sums up Paul's whole theology. Grace means gift. It's God's gracious gift of his son. And peace, shalom, means flourishing, well-being. It means fullness. So the grace of God produces peace with God and peace in life. And this grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's quite a greeting. Grace and peace to you from God your Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here in verses 4 through 9, we have a thanksgiving, Paul's gratitude to God's grace in this church. And we'll see that Paul has, um, he, he's reminding them that there's past grace, and there's present grace, and there's future grace for these people. It's amazing that he can write this and believe this when, when he looks at the church, it's so broken. And yet I love what Paul says, verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you. Usually, 
What Paul says is, I always thank my God for you, church, because of how you love one another, right? He says something positive about them. But in this verse, he says, I always thank God for you because of God, because of how gracious God has been to you, because God did save you. God did rescue you. That past grace, you need to stand firmly in that. God has brought you into life, but not, not just the past grace. Right now, I see that there's present grace happening. For in Jesus, you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So we're seeing the people's lives, though, though they're, they're not where they should be, they're different than who they used to be, right? And it's proof that the gospel works, right? It's, Paul's saying it's confirmation that what we talked about, Jesus Christ, it actually has changed you. You look different now because now you're speaking differently. You're thinking differently. You're talking differently. And so it's proof that God is alive. It's not just something we believe up here. It's something that changes how we act. I see it among you. I believe it among you. It's God working among you by the spirit to change you day by day by day by day. God's past grace, God's present grace, enriching the church, encouraging them. Paul is reminding them how much God has poured out for them. And most astoundingly of all, it's not just past grace. It's not just present grace. It's future grace. Paul is so sure that these Corinthians will be there until the very end. He just says it. God will keep you, verse 8, firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's astounding. Doesn't it feel like probably for this church as we read through, there's a lot of blame to go around, right? There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of sin issues in this church, both Door Creek and the church in Corinth. <laughs> and you're thinking, man, I, I, I'm thinking I've got a lot of blame. I've got a lot of sin in my life. How is it that I'm going to be blameless on the, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can Paul look at this church and say all of you in Christ will be absolutely spotless and blameless upon his return? knowing what he knows about how they're acting. Here's how. Because just like you and my relationship is built on this, the relationship of the Corinthians to God is built on this. Right? God is not um, pleased with you. He doesn't love you because of your behavior. Right? He loves you because of what he's done through his son to save you. And so God's love right, is not dependent on your performance. God's love is not driven by your performance. God's love is driven by his promise that he is faithful and that he is loving. And his power will secure you to the end. So that even though now you sin, even though now you stumble, even though now this week all of us, if we were honest, we messed up. What, what if all of us right now, what, what if we did this, right? If all your thoughts this week, everything you did, we just put up on the screen. Who would be, who would be excited about that, right? I wouldn't. And aren't there many of us who think, how, how, how in the world will I ever be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got so much blame. I've got so much sin. I've got so many things that I've done wrong. Paul says, God is faithful. And it's God's power and it's God's love and it's God's grace that will send you all the way to the new heaven and the new earth. Because though you are a sinner, even more foundational to that, you are a saint. You are a saint. And who you are in Christ is what should dominate your life. And the fact that you sin doesn't separate you from God's love because Christ already paid the penalty for all of your sin. It should remind you of how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, 
how much he did to bring you into the family, to make you part of the church. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians, look what God did for you in the past. Look what he's doing right now in the present. Look that he will keep you all the way until the end, until you see his face. Until you see his face. Now that's a pastor. That's someone who loves people. Not for who they are right now, but for who they are in Christ. And Paul's saying, I know who you are. Oh, would you remember who you are? And would you live up to that? Would you live up to who Christ has made you to be? Made holy by grace, called to be holy by grace. So this is just the first nine verses. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the book continues for 16 chapters. So though there's so much great truth here, Paul then has to say, though you've been made holy, Though you've been made this, we've got problems. Because just like all of us, right, God has saved us if we're in Christ, we still sometimes don't live up to who we are. And so the first issue here Paul's going to address is infighting within the church, which can sometimes happen. Some of you are nervous laughter. Verse 10, I appeal, not I demand. This loving appeal, I desire to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. So here's what's happening here, just so we know what what is going on, that that there's a a lack of unity among the early church. So Paul planned the church around AD 51. He was there for about 18 months, but then he left to go start other churches. And after he left, things start to kind of get a little crazy because you got people trying to figure out how do we do life together? And people start to follow all kinds of different people. And someone from Chloe's household, which she probably was uh, someone a part of the church there in Corinth, sent word to Paul where he was, probably in Ephesus, saying, Paul, dude, the church in Corinth, things are not good. (laughs) People are fighting. People are following other people, right? We've got immorality. We've got all the worldly values in the church. We need your help. And so they've gone to Paul and they said, here's the things going on in the church. And Paul has written them a letter in response, which is this letter. He actually wrote them another letter, which has now been lost. So he wrote them three letters. So you know there might be problems. <laughs> they got three. And so he's writing this letter. And the first issue here is what's happening is that in the Corinthian culture, they elevated human speech. They loved the people who brought the message, not so much the message. They liked cleverness of talk. They liked it when you had creative slides, right? They liked a snow machine. They liked all this stuff. They loved it, right? Message, blah, blah, blah. If you make it pretty, though, we're just going to salivate over right, the details of it which is just a first century problem, of course. <laughs> and so what happens is, you, in the early church, there are probably about 100 Christians in this town of about 100,000. So it's really important that they're unified. It's always important that the church is unified. But it's really important when there are only 100 of you. And they're meeting in different people's homes. So probably four or five, six homes, which can house about 20 to 30 people. They're meeting in there, they're singing psalms, they're hearing the word, and they're saying, people are like, I love Paul, we're Paul's people. It's got this kind of political sloganeering around. Like you watch the presidential debates and you kind of have your person. It's like, that's who, yes, you. 
And they're doing the same thing to the leaders of the church. Paul, he's our man. Well, there's this other guy named Apollos, who likely was one of the most gifted teachers in the early church. And some people are like, we love Apollos. He's probably really intellectual, really smart. And they're like, when's Apollos preaching? We, we were going to go to that house. Then you've got Cephas, who's Peter, who's probably more of a blue collar guy. He's just giving it to him, laying it in there. And some of the people are like, we love, right? We love Cephas. Apollos, he's too highfalutin. He's too, no, no, no. That's just weird. Just give us the meat. When's Peter coming to town? And you've got the Christ party. And Paul is not using this as a, these are the right people. He's saying, then you've got these other group of people who are being a bit, um, what could we say, pharisaical, a bit religious. They're saying, no, 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 we don't follow any human person. We only follow Christ. And all of you, all of you are just wrong. Which, if you were really a Christian, would not be how you act. So they've created their own group by saying, we follow Christ. So even they're in the wrong. And so you have all of these people that are being broken up and split up. And Paul is so heartbroken because he knows the mission is going to be hindered because the people in Corinth have elevated the messengers over the message. And we can do that too, right? <laughs> Especially in Christian culture now. Wow. And we can forget Jesus at the center of it all because we like how this person talks or we like this band or we like this movie. And yeah, Jesus is a part of it, but we're more attracted to, to all of the window dressing. And the church cannot exist like that, right? A house divided against itself will fall. That's Jesus' words, right? And it happened in our church, right? I, I follow Mark. <laughs> I follow R.D. I, I follow John. I follow, you know, I follow... That's who I follow. Right? When are they preaching? When are they talking? And it's not that you can't have affection for your pastors. I, I want you to like me. I want you to have affection for me. It's not give us the word, see ya, bye, go home. See you in a week. But when you begin to elevate the oratory and all the other stuff over the message, right? It's not right. I'm just a man. Mark's just a man. Right? I'm broken, he's broken. And yet God is, well, I'm not on this stage standing over you in a sense because I'm better or I have some added spiritual enlightenment, right? I'm here because this is God's role for me. And God has a role for you too. But don't mistake, right, that what I can do is save you or what I can do is change you. If you're really impacted by a message, that's amazing, but that's what God does. Paul's going to get into that. And so I just want to encourage us and, and maybe challenge us and to say God is just using people in the church to point us to Jesus. They really, if you leave here and you hear a really great message, right? If, if really great preaching does not leave you saying, what a great message. Really great preaching leaves you saying, what a great Savior. I don't even remember who talked. And that's what we're always committed to at Door Creek is making Jesus big making him central, making him beautiful. So that's when you leave, you say, what a savior. How much does he love us? And hopefully we do it in a way that is attractive and is helpful to you. But that's not the point. Why? Paul is just going to lay the hammer down here. He's going to ask these rhetorical questions that the people hopefully should have the right answer to. <laughs> Verse 13, is Christ divided? How many bodies are there? One. <laughs> right, there's one body. Christ, in a sense, though, is divided right now. And Paul's saying, this cannot happen. There's one body. You must be united together of mind and thought, right? Perfectly united. Thinking, believing the same things, loving each other. Was Paul crucified for you? 
No, no man was crucified for you but Jesus Christ. Paul's a great leader, but he's not Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, I wasn't crucified for you. I didn't go to the cross for you. I don't have righteousness to give you. It's only from Jesus. So elevate him and not me. I'm just a man that God has used in a unique way, but I'm just a man pointing to a much greater man. All right. He's just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. That's who Paul is. Verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. So in the early church, uh, people would be attracted to who baptized them, right? You baptize me. I will follow you anywhere, teacher. Wherever you go, it's like, dude, calm down. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I didn't baptize you in my name. It's not in the name of the Father, the Son, and Paul, and we bring you up. <laughs> and yet in the early church, it can happen now. You get really attached to human leaders. Early church, they were like, you baptize me, I want to follow you. I want to believe in you. And Paul's saying, that's why I baptized so few people, because I didn't want to have that attachment to so many of you. Because then the focus would be on me and not on Jesus. I love in verse 16, Someone maybe jogged Paul's memory that he maybe baptized more people, which is just classic. It's in parentheses. Verse 16, yes. Oh, wait, 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 I forgot. <laughs> uh, uh, wait, someone reminded me. I also baptized the house of Stephanius. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. So I just, let's, wait, let's make the Bible so real. Why would you add that if it was made up, right? Paul's like, he's, he's dictating it to his secretary, so he's not physically writing it. Um, he's, his secretary may be like, oh, Paul, wait, wait, wait. You did baptize a whole household. Paul's like, oh, yeah, yeah, write that down, write that down. I don't, you know what, I don't remember who else I baptized because that's not the point. What's the point? Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, though that's important, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And when the messenger is elevated over the message, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. And God forbid preaching that ever empties the cross of Christ of its power. Yet it's so easy to do. Paul's life is built on preaching the gospel. And he uses his life to point to Jesus. That's the beauty. Paul's life has been changed radically by Jesus. And I have no doubt he talked about that a lot. Guys, this is who I was. This is now who I am. But it wasn't to be like, look who I made myself to be. It was, look what Christ has done in me. My life has been changed by the gospel, by Jesus. And that's what we can do too. All of our stories are so powerful if we connect them to Jesus. They're all so powerful because we've met Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. The cross of Christ is the center of Christian preaching. It's the center of the gospel. And if you use clever words, uh, if you try and make it fancy or pretty, you can't do that when Jesus Christ is on a cross naked and humiliated and bloody. You just got to preach that. You just got to let that sit on people and say, this is what happened because of the sins of the world. And this is how much God cares for us. This is the wrath of God poured out on the sins, poured out on Jesus because of all of our sin. And Paul's just saying, I want to preach that because, guys, that's our only hope. That's what the church is built on. And that was the good news in the first century. And that's the good news in the 21st century. And guess what? It'll be the good news in the 39th century, in the 49th century. Because our tagline of 1 Corinthians is how the gospel changes everything. 
The cure for what's going wrong in the Corinthian church is the gospel. Because we all get gospel amnesia. We all forget it. We all wander away from it. And Paul says, keep coming back to who you are in Christ. Keep coming back to who God has made you to be. That's how you're going to quit fighting. That's how you're going to quit these lawsuits. That's how you're going to quit being sexually immoral. Because when you remember who you are and what Christ did to purchase you and to change you, you're going to live differently. You're going to act differently. Remember Jesus and him crucified. The gospel changed changes how you live, how you do marriage, how you use your money, how you parent, how you live in your apartment when you're alone. It changes everything. And so for the Corinthians, it changes how they do church and it changes how they are the church to their city. It does both things. It both changes the internal things in the church and it changes the external issues in Corinth because now as a healthy church, as a vibrant church, they can go be a united light in the city of Corinth proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, and return of King Jesus. The gospel has the power to do that. It's not just a one-time decision. It's a all-the-time dependence. We need it every day. We need to be reminded of all the time that Jesus Christ bled and died for you for me, for we, for us, to make a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. That's the church. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Paul is saying the gospel changes everything. Church, remember who you are. And so if you're here today and, and, and you're like the early Corinthians and you're thinking this church is messed up, great. <laughs> it is, okay? Spoiler alert, <laughs> we got a lot of problems here, but guess what? We're trying to solve them together with the power of Jesus. No one here is perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, this is not for you. (laughs) But if you're looking for a church that's not perfect but follows a perfect Savior, this is a beautiful community to be a part of. There's a lot of blame, I know, in your life. There's a lot of sin in your life. There's a lot of pain in your life. There are a lot of things that you've done wrong. Guess what? There are a lot of things that you will do wrong, but be encouraged by this. God knows everything about you. All of your thoughts on the screen, he already knows. Everything in your past, he already knows. When he went to the cross, he knew everything about your life, every single thing you would do, and he still said, I want you in my family. I want you a part of the church. I want you to go be a light in the darkness. I want not just the message to be proclaimed, but that messengers would be changed by my grace so that the power of the gospel would be Jesus, but Jesus transforming lives. That's the church. And it started with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila in a room somewhere. And they probably walked around the city of Corinth thinking, how in the world? Here's a temple. Here's people just having sex in the street. Right? Here's just all this immorality, all this evil. There's just three of us. And look what God did. God kept growing and growing and growing and growing the church. And now look, here we are, 2,000 years later, reading this book, still the church. Yes, trying to figure it out, wandering our way through the darkness a little bit, but God has our hand. And God is faithful, who called us into fellowship with his son. And he is faithful to bring us all the way home as the church. This is 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's heart for them And it's my, Mark's, it's all of our hearts for you. Oh, that we could be the people God's called us to be. Let's pray. Oh, Almighty Father, 
I'm just thankful for the Apostle Paul. I'm thankful for Priscilla and Aquila. I'm thankful for the hundreds of men and women who we don't even know their names who began the church in Corinth thinking, there's no way. I'm thankful that 50 years ago you started Door Creek Church with people maybe thinking, will there be any way? Will we be here in 50 years? And yet, God, here we are. Father, I pray for great unity at Door Creek Church. I pray that we would be a people who love each other deeply, even when we disagree over, over things, but that we would be perfectly united and knit together because at the center of it all, we have your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I'm thankful that we have grace and peace from you. And because we have grace, we can have peace. Father, we long to see you face to face. Until then, keep us faithful. Help us love our city that many would come to know how beautiful you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen.